The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Morning, Shades. Uh, my mother texts me every single Sunday. And this morning, she wrote the following. Just wanted to let you know that I'm praying for you this morning. Praying for wisdom, discernment, clarity, boldness, and an extra amount of grace. May you preach with the power and authority given to you by Christ. And may hearts be open, sensitive, and responsive to his word. I love you, son. Mom. I consider myself insanely blessed to have a mother who constantly points me to Christ. Uh, at least, at least 50% of the phone calls that I get from my mom are about Jesus. Usually it's with a Bible question, hence the benefit of having a son who was a seminary nerd. But she calls me with these Bible questions, typically because she's been in a conversation with someone about Christ, and they've had a question. Another significant portion of the phone calls that I get from her are actually on behalf of my grandmother, who still pours over her Bible daily, and she still has questions because she wants to know Christ more, find more joy in Christ. And, and these two women, many more women, but these two women, from the time I was born, have impacted my life more than I could ever express through how they seek joy in Christ. I, uh, I feel like Timothy, who the Apostle Paul, he, he describes saying this, he says, I am reminded, Timothy, of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Like Paul is the person who led Timothy to Christ, and yet he credits the very foundation of his faith to his his grandmother and his mother and my own grandmother and mother have impacted me because they are always wanting to know more of Christ, love him more, seek their joy in him more. And their joy in Christ makes Christ known to me, to others. To, I would argue that it impacts the world. Moms, hear this. Nothing you do is insignificant when it comes to showing your kids joy in the glory of Christ. My grandmother, 97 years young, is confined to her house, my, my parents' house. She lives with my, my mom. She's confined to her home, and yet I would argue she impacts the world with her joy in Christ because she impacts my mom, who impacts me. Pray that by the grace of God, through six years of being here, that some of you, God may have worked through me to impact. I pray, and God works through you, I pray, to impact others in your life, and it goes on and on and on. From her confinement in her bedroom, my grandmother and mother know joy and the glory of Christ, and their joy makes his glory known to the ends of the earth. Moms, this is the greatest thing you can ever do for your children. Know such joy in the glory of God that it makes his glory known. This is the greatest thing you can ever do. And we have been seeing in John 17 that this is Jesus' deepest prayer for you. Not just for you moms, but for, for all of us. Christ wants us to know joy and the glory of the triune God, such joy that it makes his glory known. And so through this prayer, we've been trying to see, what does that look like? And that's the journey that we're going to continue this morning. If this is the most important thing for moms to pass on to their kids, the most important thing for all of us, the deepest prayer of Christ for all his saints, then, then this is where we're going to turn our attention to this morning. Continue to dive into John 17. See more how we can know joy in God's glory so that our joy makes his glory known. So let's pray, and we'll head back into John 17. Father, we need you. Desperately, we confess that apart from you, as you have told us in John 15, we can do nothing. 
We need you. We're dependent upon you. And we need you now as we open your word. We can't see your glory here unless you show it to us. Reveal yourself to us by your spirit through your son. Show us you in your word. Overwhelm us with your glory. Make that the central treasure, the ultimate supreme treasure of our lives. And show us how that is made known to the world. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, who is our joy by the spirit's power. Amen. So if you haven't already, I do invite you to open your Bible to John chapter 17. If you weren't with us, got to do just a, if you weren't with us last week, got to do just a little bit of review because last week we spent a significant portion of our time talking about God's holiness. Specifically, we talked about two aspects of God's holiness. First, the fact that God is holy, we said that means that he is set apart. He's unique. He's distinct. He's in a category unto his own. And that means he is supremely valuable. Like Paul says in Philippians 3, that nothing compares with the worth, the supreme worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. God is the greatest treasure our hearts could have. He's holy, uniquely, supremely valuable. And second, we said that part of his holiness is this, that all of God's thoughts, all of his affections, and all of his actions tell the truth about his supreme value. This is also what makes God holy, good, right, true. He doesn't lie to you. All of his thoughts hold him up as supremely valuable. All of his affections hold him up as supremely valuable. All of his actions hold him up as the greatest treasure for your heart. All he does, this is why from beginning to end, Scripture is centered on the glory of God. This is why from beginning to end of Scripture, we see that God is centered on the glory of God. He does all he does to display to you his holiness. And we call the display of holiness glory. God does all he does for his own glory to show you his beauty, his goodness, his greatness, his supreme value. That's holy for him to do that. It's right. That's true. And it's good news for you. Because that's the most loving thing that God can do. He has created you to be satisfied with nothing less than the best. And the best is himself. To not give you himself would be to give you something that can never satisfy your heart. Augustine, St. Augustine put this really, really poignantly. A lot of you have heard it, probably remember it. He said that, To God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Nothing else will satisfy our hearts. Uh, Another popular theologian called, it's a group of theologians called the Rolling Stones, put it this way. Human beings, they said, we can't get no satisfaction. Because what the Rolling Stones are very brilliantly observing is that we try to satisfy our hearts with the glory of anything that this world has to offer. We try to satisfy our hearts with the glory of romantic relationships, with the glory of success, the glory of careers, the glory of fame, the glory of our own beauty and body. We try to find joy in the glory of anything except God. And the problem is, is that all of those glories I just listed, they're temporary, they fade. So the joy they produce fades, and we can't get no satisfaction. But the glory of God, as Augustine observed, never fades. It's an eternal glory that provides eternal joy. Psalm 1611, I quote it to you all the time. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Beholding your glory, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Full joy forever only found in God. So, When God holds up his own glory as the greatest treasure, he is inviting your heart to have its greatest joy. You see how that works? Eternal joy in eternal glory. It's the most loving thing that God can do. And it's what Jesus does in John chapter 17 as he prays for you. And as he prays for me, hear the deepest prayer of our high priest. John 17, look at verse 1. 
Father, the hour has come. That's the hour of his death, resurrection, ascension. The hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Through my death, through my resurrection, through my ascension, let's, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, let's, let's hold up our glory, our holiness. Let's, let's reveal ourselves, who we are, to our people, that they may have joy in our glory forever. I know that's what he's after because of verse 13. Jesus says, these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus' joy is full, perfect joy in the triune God. That's the joy he wants fulfilled in you forever. I know that because of what he says in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. Jesus prays for God to be glorified so that your heart may be satisfied, full joy forever in him. Shades, see the deepest prayer of your high priest. Jesus' prayer for his own glory is the deepest depths of his love for you. It is a prayer for your eternal joy. The deepest prayer of your high priest is that you would know joy in the glory of God. But that's not his full prayer. We're not done. He's got more left to pray. I hope that even as I said that, it sounds familiar to you. That Jesus' deepest prayer is that you would know joy in the glory of God. I hope that sounds familiar to you because a few weeks ago I shared with you that my deepest prayer for you, Shades, my deepest desire is that you would know joy in the glory of God. That, that's my deepest prayer precisely because I believe it's Christ's deepest prayer. And as an under-shepherd, pastor, it's what pastor means, a shepherd, as an under-shepherd of, of God's people, I want my prayer for you to align with the prayer of your one and only great shepherd. I want you to know joy in the glory of God because that's what Christ wants. But that's not all he wants. That prayer is unfinished. There's more to it. If you recall from several weeks ago when I shared with you my deepest desire, I actually shared with you the full prayer. I told you that I, my deepest desire for you is, is I want you to know joy in the glory of God so that your joy makes his glory known. That's my full prayer. That's my deepest prayer because I believe it's Christ's fullest, deepest prayer. In John 17, we not only see that Christ's prayer for his own glory is the deepest display of his love for us, but we also see that it transforms the deepest depths in us. When Jesus prays for you and I to behold the glory of the triune God, he is praying for our transformation that I believe makes his glory known to the world. How? That's the question I want to tackle for the rest of this morning. He wants you to know joy in the glory of God so that that joy will make his glory known. How does that work? This is what we began to unpack last week in verses 6 to 19. And what I tried to do is I tried to point out four ways that beholding the glory of God transforms us, transforms the deepest depths in us. I said it saves us, it secures us, it sanctifies us, and it sends us. Last week we covered the first two, saves and secures. We don't have time to review, sorry. Go back and listen to the podcast if you weren't here. So for the rest of this time, we are going to focus on the final two. How does beholding the glory of God transform the deepest depths in you? I'm saying it does so by sanctifying you and sending you. So first, we're going to look at these one at a time, and we're going to spend 99.9% .9 of our time on the first one. It sanctifies you. We'll tag the last one on at the very end. So let's look. Beholding the glory of God, it's my summary point, 
transforms the deepest depths in us by sanctifying us. Let's unpack that. What does that word even mean? Sanctify. It comes from the Latin sanctus. It really just means holy. It's basically the same word. The problem is in English, we don't have a verb form of holy. There's no holying, holify. We don't have it. So we have to change it. And so we use sanctify, sanctifying, sanctification. The Greek doesn't do that. The language that your New Testament was originally in doesn't do that. It's got one word. For the noun, the adjective, the adverb, the verb, hagios. The noun, it's hagios, which just means holy. That's how we translate that. And the verb, it's hagiatso, which we translate sanctify. So in other words, when you're reading your Bible and you come across the word sanctify, you should read holy. We're dealing with talking about Holiness. For us to be sanctified means that we are being made holy. We're being holified. Great. What does that mean? What does it mean for us to be holy? Last week we talked about what it means for God to be holy. Separate, category of his own, creator overall. Well, that can't be what it means for us to be holy. We're not creator. By definition, we can't join that category. We will always be the created. I mean, sure, we could say that for us to be holy means that we're set apart, but for what? To what? I think that verse 11 helps us out. We skipped part of this verse last week, and I told you that we'd come back to it, so let's go back to it. Look at verse 11 with me. John 17 and verse 11. Jesus prays to the Father and says, And I am no longer in the world, but they, it's his disciples, are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So right here, Jesus is praying for his Holy Father to guard his followers, to keep them, secure them, which we talked about in depth last week. But this what I want us to see this week is that this guarding, this keeping, is aimed at a particular purpose. Do you see it? Father, keep them. Why? That they may be one, even as we are one. How are Christ and his Holy Father one? We've already talked about it when we talked about his holiness. They are united in all of their thoughts, all of their affections, and all their actions to show the supreme worth of the triune God. Is that not the oneness Jesus begins the prayer with? All right, Father, let's be one. Glorify the Son that the Son may glorify you. That's, that's the oneness that he begins with, and it's the oneness that he has continued to emphasize all throughout the prayer, that he and the Father would work together in the power of the Holy Spirit to put their supreme worth on display. And now he prays for our faith to be guarded for the same purpose. Father, guard their faith, guard their joy in you, so that all of their thoughts all of their affections, all of their actions show the supreme worth of the triune God. Guard their faith so that they may be holy as we are holy. That should sound familiar. That's a refrain echoed all throughout the Scriptures. Going all the way back to Genesis, coming all the way through the Gospels, all the way on into the Epistles in First Peter. Be holy as I am holy. You ever gone? What does that mean? How? How am I supposed to be holy as God is holy? This is what that means. We've been set apart from the world, made the people of God, so that all of our thoughts, affections, and actions might display God as our greatest treasure. That's how God is holy. All his thoughts, actions, effect, display him as the greatest treasure. Be holy as I am holy. Your thoughts, your affections, 
Your actions, do they display, they do display what is supremely valuable to all of us. Do they display that God is of supreme value? That's what it means to be holy. This revolutionizes the way that we think about holiness. So often, so often, and this was me my entire life growing up, and it's not the fault of my parents or the church that I was in. I think this is how natural, fallen, unregenerate people conceive of holiness. Most people think that holiness is merely doing the right thing. There's things I should do. There's things I shouldn't do. So I can just make a list of laws. Ooh, look, convenient. God made an entire Old Testament with a list of laws. So I just make this list of laws and and I keep the laws and I am holy. But if holiness means that your thoughts display the worth of God, your affections display His supreme value, your actions display His supreme value, then it's possible for you to keep every single law without an ounce of love for God in your heart. Just look at the Pharisees that we've seen all throughout the Gospel of John, right? No one kept the law more diligently than they did. They were tithing their spices. I dare you to try that next week. And here's 10% of my entire spice rack shades. Don't do that. Be a crazy mess. No one kept the law more diligently than they did. Yet in John chapter 8, we saw Jesus tell them that they were of their father, the devil. Why? Because in John 12, he told them that they loved, loved, they loved. Where was their heart? Not their external actions and external conformity to the law, but where was their heart? They loved the glory that comes from man and not the glory of God. Their thoughts, their affections, and their actions were not aimed at displaying God as their treasure. They were not holy. They were not right. They were not good. They were sinful. For sin, like if this is what holiness is, then sin is any thought, affection, or action that doesn't have God as its supreme treasure. Do you feel how big sin just got? Like if, if sin is just, I got a list of rules and I got to keep them, then I can probably self-discipline myself enough to feel really great about myself. But if the greatest commandment really is the heart of all the commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, that's with all of your thoughts, all of your affections, all of your actions. If that's the heart of it, then 99.999 and probably even more than that percent of my life just became sin. And I need a Savior. I need a cross that can justify me and wipe me clean and make me holy. And all of a sudden, do you see how it is that Christ becomes your supreme treasure? Shades, do you see the radical implications of this reality? We can do all the right things that we want. We can go through all the right actions, keep the right rules, and be the right kind of person and be completely wrong. For holiness is not a matter of law-keeping, but of loving, treasuring. Prophet Isaiah spoke of the people in his day, said that these people, God says of these people, that they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They say the right things, they do the right things, and I hate all of it because it's soaked with sin. No affection for him. Jesus looks at the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23 and he calls them whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside, but on the inside you are full of dead man's bones. Why can he say that? Because holiness is not a matter of law keeping, it is a matter of loving. Do you love Christ? Is he your treasure? Do you see how this all of a sudden eliminates legalism? Legalism is the idea that I can keep a list of rules, laws, in order to make myself right with God, make him like me, and love me. This destroys that. And it doesn't just destroy legalism, it destroys license. License is the idea that, oh, 
I don't have to keep a list of rules or laws or whatever. God's going to love me no matter what the heck I do, so I'll go do whatever it is I want to. No, this eliminates that because holiness is love. I love him and all of my thoughts, all of my affections, all of my actions are aimed at displaying his supreme value. How in the world could I live a life of license? It makes no sense. I don't want it to sound like I am down on the law, like I'm down on the Old Testament, like I'm saying all that's pointless and useless, not at all. Jesus says that in his great commission, that part of our great commission is to go and to teach people to obey all that he has commanded. But it's a matter of love. He says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. You don't keep my commands in order to earn love. You love me. So you want to show my spirit. So that's why you keep my commands. 1 John 5 and verse 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So we love him, and we want to show his supreme value. Becoming holy as God is holy, being sanctified, is having all my thoughts, affections, and actions transformed to display God as the supreme treasure of the universe. That's what it means to be holy. So the question becomes, how do we do that? I'm not very good at it. I don't know about you. How do we do that? I believe that Jesus unpacks the answer to that question through his prayer in verse 17. Look at it with me. Sanctify them. Holify. Hagiadso, right? Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them. Holify them, make them holy as we are holy. Jesus is asking his Father to do this. Do you see that? This is something that God does. I just ask the question, how are we going to do this? And now I'm saying it's something that God does. This is a transformation that only God can bring about. I cannot make myself holy. Only God can do that. So, I guess that means that we just have to wait for God to do it, right? We're supposed to be holy, only God can make us holy, so I guess the sermon is over. Summary being, you're to be holy as God is holy. All your thoughts, affections, and actions are to display him as your treasure. But only God can bring that about, so you're just going to have to wait for it to happen. Total passivity, right? No. There are whole theologies built around that, summarized with things like let go and let God. No. Just because God sovereignly sanctifies us does not mean that we are not responsibly involved. We talk about this all the time, the tension between God's sovereignty and and human responsibility, right? Just because he sovereignly sanctifies us doesn't mean that we're not responsibly involved. Look again at verse 17. Jesus doesn't just pray for his Father to sanctify us, but he includes how, how that's going to happen. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Father, you sanctify them, you transform them, you make them holy with us as their supreme treasure, and you do it through the means of your true word. Our God is a God of means. He works his sovereign power through things and through people. God's sovereignty does not eliminate our responsibility to use those means. For instance, illustration. What keeps you alive? Food or God? This is not a trick question. You're a Christian, there is a right answer. God. God keeps you alive. If God quits willing our existence, we cease to exist. There's not a rogue molecule in this universe. He's sovereign over it all. He sustains it all. God keeps you alive. So, why do you eat? 
I mean, you know, if God's going to sovereignly keep you alive, why eat? Because he's a God of means. And he works his sovereign power to sustain your life through food. And you're responsible to eat. His sovereignty doesn't eliminate your responsibility to use the means that God has ordained to accomplish his purposes. People ask this question about prayer all the time, right? Well, if God's sovereignly going to do what he's going to do, then why would I pray? That's like saying, why would I eat bread? Because he's a God of means. And he works his sovereign power through the means that he has ordained to accomplish those purposes. That doesn't make food meaningless. It makes it meaningful. It doesn't make prayer meaningless. It makes it meaningful. It doesn't make sanctification meaningless. It makes it meaningful. Verse 17 is showing us that the same thing is true in sanctification. That God sovereignly, yes, God alone can sovereignly sanctify you, make you holy as he is holy, where your whole life displays him as your treasure. But God brings about that transformation through the means of his word. That's what Jesus says, right? Sanctify them in truth. Let me give you a synonym. Your word is truth. This isn't the first time Jesus has talked about the word of God in this prayer. All throughout John 17, he's made reference to God's word over and over again. And every time he does, he's talking about how God's word reveals who God is. That's that's how the whole gospel of John talks about the Word of God. The Word is that which reveals who God is. That's why in the very opening verses of John, Jesus himself is called the Word made flesh. He reveals who God is. So, when Jesus prays for us to be sanctified through the true Word of God, he is praying that we'll behold who God is through his Word. Jesus believes that's what will transform you. That's what will sanctify you. That's what will holify you. Beholding the glory of God, who he is. Beholding the glory of God is what Jesus believes will transform the deepest depths in us. That that's what will sanctify us. We don't think about sanctification that way. We think about it as doubling down on our efforts to keep lists. Jesus says, no, it's about putting the beauty, the goodness, the greatness, the glory of God before you so that that captures your heart, so that you love him. And it's through love. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. Don't put the command keeping on the front end. It goes on the back end. Beholding the glory of God through the Word of God is what Jesus says will sanctify us, holify us, make God our supreme treasure. I've, I've told you this before, that toddlers only have two hand positions, open and vice grip of death. That's it. So when my son Asher gets a hold of something that he's not supposed to have, how do I get him to open his Hulk hands? I hold up this magical device, invented by Apple on our behalf. I hold up my cell phone, because cell phones are like bug lights for toddlers for some reason. And I put the glory of the cell phone on display, light up the screen. And when he beholds my cell phone, for the supreme treasure that it is, his thoughts his affections and his actions are transformed to display it as his supreme treasure. He drops whatever he was holding and runs for the phone to enjoy its glory. And of course, then I put it back in my pocket. But you see the point. It's seeing God for the supreme treasure that he is that will transform us to treasure him supremely. It's seeing him for the true supreme treasure that he is that's going to transform my thoughts, that's going to transform my affections, that's going to transform my actions to, to embrace him as that supreme 
treasure. And Jesus says we behold God as our supreme treasure through his word. Through scripture. The Holy Spirit of God works through this word to show us the glory of God through the Son of God. Here, the triune God is at work to put himself on display to you. Do you see it? Do you see his glory? Do you behold it? Are you beholden to it? Shades, the essence of what Jesus is saying here is that we will become what we behold. Just behold me and my value through the word, and that will become your supreme treasure. You will become what you behold. Every mom knows that truth, right? Like, like this is why my, my wife is very concerned about the other children that my children hang around, or that my mom was concerned about the friends that I had and hung around, Right? Because they know you'll become what you behold and what you are beholden to. We, we become what we behold. Every mom knows that truth. Jesus knows that truth. That's why he wants us to behold the holiness of God, that we may be holy as he is holy. We become what we behold. Ask yourself the question, what do I behold? What am I beholden to? What do I set before myself day after day after day to gaze upon? When I'm in the car and driving, what's going on up here? What am I setting before myself to to meditate on, to think on, to gaze upon? What am I beholden to? What's the idle hum of my mind? Like, you know when you put your car in neutral and it just idles? When you put your mind in neutral, what does it idle on? It's a good guess as to what we're beholden to. Like, what do we set our gaze upon day after day after day that shapes what we treasure, shapes our thoughts, affections, and actions? Are we beholden to the 24-hour news cycle? That shapes our view of the world what we think is important, what we think is urgent, convinces us about who we are, who we're supposed to be, convinces us about who's in control around the world and who has real power. Are we beholden to that or are we beholden to the God of Psalm 2 who laughs at the nations who think they rule the world? Who are we beholden to? Are we beholden to materialism and and money, always setting before us the things that we don't have, convincing us they're the things we need in order to be happy. We do this through our entertainment a lot. Constantly set before us things that we don't have, that we want. I mean, we name shows things like Keeping Up with the Kardashians. What's the implication of that title? That this is supposed to be your goal. This is who you're trying to keep up with, who you're trying to be. And we set things before ourselves constantly. We gaze upon them. They shape our thoughts, our affections, and our actions. And we lust after material things and and money. If I could just get that next job promotion, if I could just make it to that salary level, if I could just get a house that looked like it was designed by Chip and Joanna Gaines, you know, if I could just get whatever, fill in the blank, and, and we're beholden to money and materialism instead of being beholden Christ, who says in Matthew 6, 24, that you can't be beholden to God and money. Why? No one can serve two masters, for he will hate one and love. Love. It's a matter of love, affection. What's shaping your affection? You'll hate one and love the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can only have one supreme treasure. What are we beholden to? Are we beholden to, I, I think one that's really on the rise, stay with me right here, I think that we are beholden to our own fame and notoriety. And you may be like, John, I got no aspirations to be famous. I don't care. I mean, like, shrink it down. I think that we are beholden to our own fame and notoriety, especially through things like social media. Do we obsessively depend upon likes, 
and comments and shares for affirmation? Do we, do we set this, this screen before us to scroll day after day so that it shapes our thoughts? How we think about ourselves and the world and others. I, I had, I'm, I'm sorry if you're offended that I don't follow any of you on Instagram and, and even if we're friends on Facebook, I don't follow any of you. Like you can do the little unfollow feature. My entire news feed is me. It's just my pictures. That's it. Why? Because I found that when I followed people, for whatever reason, it pricked sinful areas of my heart that I struggled with jealousy. Crazy. Do, do we depend upon these things for, so that it, do, do we set these things before us, gaze after them, gaze upon them day after day so that they shape our thoughts, our affections, our actions? And they make ourselves our supreme treasure. That's ultimately what's going on when I'm being jealous of other people, right? I'm offended because I should be the supreme treasure. Shades, what are we beholden to? What do we spend our lives beholding? We will become what we behold. Psalm 135, verses 15 to 18. The idols of the nations are silver and gold. The work of human hands, they have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. We become what we behold. We are either being shaped and fashioned into the image of the living God or we're being shaped and fashioned by whatever idol we put before ourselves. And the psalmist says the truth about all of those idols is that as you're shaped by them, you will no longer see the truth, you will no longer hear the truth, you will no longer speak the truth, you will no longer even have true life. They'll rob you of all of it. You become what you behold. And if you behold the glory of God, then verse 3 of Jesus' prayer in John 17 becomes true for you. This is eternal life, full life, full joy. Seeing the truth, hearing the truth, speaking the truth, knowing the truth, having full life that you know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. We become what we behold and Christ prays for us to behold the glory, the holiness of God and we behold it through his word. This is, this is why I preach the way that I preach. This, this is why I try to stay centered on the word and centered on God. You can go a lot of places to hear man-centered preaching and felt need preaching. Want a fancy word for it? It's called anthropomorphic preaching. Throw that out at your next party gathering. This is why we try to stay centered on the Word, centered on God, because I believe that beholding Him is what changes you. Not hearing about the latest felt need or the coolest new counseling method. What changes you is not Jonathan's helpful tidbits for life, but getting a vision of Christ so that He captures your heart. This is what you need as a mom. This is what you need as a dad, as a husband, as a single, as a grandparent, as an elderly person, as a young person, as a child. This is what we need. We need Christ and Him to capture our hearts. This is why we need to hear that message, that word, that gospel proclaimed week after week. We can't just hear it once, go, okay, know that truth, check it off, move on, and be beholden to it. We're beholden to what we continually set before us. So we gather each week to open this word and set before us again the glory of God. To see him through hearing his word and preaching. To see him through hearing his word and singing. To see him through hearing his word in, in prayer. This is, this is why we don't just gather here. This is why we gather in other places too. This is why we've started catechesis on Sunday mornings. It's time for us to gather together with other believers to behold the glory of God in the Word because that's what's going to change us. This is why we do community groups so we can come together in the week and point each other to who Christ is through the Word. And yes, yes, you can't, no, you've probably noticed everything I'm emphasizing so far about us coming together to behold the glory of God in the Word has to do with us doing it together. There's a reason for that. 
Yes, you can do this on your own. Yes, you can get into the word on your own in your home. And I totally encourage that and embrace that. But I save that for last because that's usually what we put first. When we talk about beholding the glory of God in the word, we normally talk about our practices as an individual believer. But I am a firm believer that sanctification, beholding the glory of God so that he becomes our supreme treasure, that's something that we primarily do together. I'm convinced that the Christian life is something that we primarily do together. And one of the greatest victories of the enemy in American Christianity is that he's convinced us it's something we do alone and as individuals. Guess what? The devil roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Have you ever watched a nature show? Do you know who the lions go after first? The isolated, the weak, the one that can split off from the rest of the herd. Don't forsake your meeting together. Spur one another on towards faith and good works as long as it is today. Sanctification, the pursuit of God as our supreme treasure is something we primarily do together. That's how Jesus prays. Father, sanctify them Together, through your word, transform their thoughts, their affections, their actions together. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 is a passage that tons of people love to quote to talk about what transformation is like. Romans 12 and verse 2 says for us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Everything in those two verses is plural. It's something the church is supposed to do together. Our thoughts, our affections, our actions transform together through the Word so that all that we do together shows that He is our treasure. That we are one as He is one. Father, Son, and Spirit working to show Him as supremely valuable. Us doing the same thing. That's what he prays for. He wants us to show the world together that there is nothing more valuable than him. I know that's what he wants because of verse 18. Verse 18, the very next verse, Jesus prays this, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Sanctify them. Why? Because I'm sending them into the world. Make us their supreme treasure so that we can send them into the world like that. As you sent me into the world, Father, I'm sending them. How did the Father send the Son into the world? He sent him to the world to display the glory of God, his holiness, him as our supreme treasure. Beholding the glory of God transforms the deepest depths in us by sending us. This is the second one. We've got 0.01% of the sermon left. Beholding the glory of God transforms the deepest depths in us by sending us. There is nothing more natural than this. We are sent to show the world the supreme treasure that is Christ. We do that by displaying him as our supreme treasure. That's what Jesus is praying in verses 17 and 18. For us to be sanctified. Have all our thoughts, affections, and actions tell the truth that God is the supreme treasure. And we are to do that. They, our thoughts, our actions, our affections are to tell that truth to the world. Our joy in the glory of God puts his glory on display. Do you see how that works? When, when I was a kid, probably in middle school at our lunch table, I don't know why we did this, but we used to ask one another, if your house was burning down, what's the one thing that you would save? What would it be? And basically, in essence, we were asking each other, what do you treasure the most? And by hanging on to that one thing over all other things, we were putting its value, its beauty, its worth on display. Our joy in the glory of God puts his glory on display, makes it known to the world, especially when the fires of life burn down the house of our living takes everything away, and we hang on to Christ, cling to him. Displays his value to the world. 
This is what Jesus prayed would happen back up in verse 15. Look at it. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, out of the place where all of these evil things could potentially happen to them, but I ask that you keep them from the evil one who roams around like a lion trying to destroy their faith. Keep their faith. Guard their faith. No matter what happens in the evilness of this world that I'm leaving them in, guard their faith so that even when the evils of the world strip away all things, including their very life, they cling to me and their joy in me displays my glory, my supreme worth and value over all things. When his glory is our greatest joy, that puts his glory on display. Oh, shades, see the deepest prayer of your high priest. He prays for you to know joy in the glory of God so that your joy makes his glory known. And he hasn't just prayed for it. He's purchased it. Final verse, verse 19. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus says, I consecrate, hagiatso, holify. I set myself apart. Why? For them, in the Greek, that's sacrificial language. He's saying, I've set myself apart for the purpose of going to the cross for their sake. Why? So that they may be sanctified in the truth. So that through the cross we might see him for who he truly is, embrace him as our joy, be united with him by faith. And in being united with him, we're now empowered by him to be holy as he is holy. In union with us, he's now at work within us to transform all our thoughts, all our affections, and all our actions through this word to make himself our supreme treasure and joy. He is our greatest joy, and our joy makes his glory known. He has purchased that for which he prayed. Oh, shades, see what Christ has purchased for you. See what he prays for you. He prays for his own glory because this is the deepest depths of his love for you, for us. And he prays for his own glory because that's what transforms the deepest depths in us. This is the deepest prayer of our high priest. Amen.